Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist, and by Seb Stafford-Bloor, editor of Tifo Football. Summer of love? Hardly. It's been pantomime season at Newcastle. They've allowed an inspirational manager to walk away. They've sold their top goalscorer. They've sold their fans down the river again. It looks like Steve Bruce may be making the biggest mistake of a long career. Now, I know it's a crowded field, Dan, but is there a more dysfunctional club? Not in the Premier League, I don't think. There are clubs further down on the brink, possibly, of extinction, but this isn't a competition and there's enough shame and guilt to go round and Newcastle deserve all they get. Um, I think the best way to describe it now is that there is a, a Newcastle United FC and there's a Mike Ashley FC. And the last embers of Newcastle United FC probably went with Rafa Benitez because he was the only one keeping that house of cards upright. And supporters were already always going to mutiny and were always going to protest if Benitez went. They promised that and Benitez has gone and, and they will do that. And I don't think any of the answers the club have from this moment in, other than a takeover that's gone very quiet, are going to give them acceptable answers. And I completely agree with them on that. Mm. We're talking about the 19th richest club in the world. Mm -hmm. They look like that they're being cheap and nasty. You've got what looks like an unsavoury situation developing almost as we speak. You know, it's understood that Steve Bruce has resigned along with his assistants, Steve Agnew and Stephen Clements from Sheffield Wednesday. So we'll hear more about that as the week progresses, I'm sure. It's not, it's an unholy mess isn't it it really is and i i my instinct when i heard about the steve bruce connection mike was that uh just seems like mike actually quite enjoys the provocation of it obviously steve bruce being a i know he's a geordie but he's a former sunderland manager and it will not be a popular appointment taking out all the sort of the issue with his managerial record and the whether he deserves that promotion or not but it it's i i think it's just it's just dispiriting it's like the the last bit of air being taken out of the balloon because while benitez was there it was almost like a sort of, um, there was, there was a, a sense of willful denial about the fan base. They knew the realities of their situation, they knew the limitations of it, but Benitez is a football manager and he is about the football. He, is not, he does not fit the trend of managers who had been appointed before him and obviously um, after him either. So it's, um, I just feel very sorry 
uh, for Newcastle supporters because it's a um, they've had to endure this for a really really long time and this is just it's just another insult actually. Mm. Do you think this is a tipping point that there will be? You know, we're already we're hearing about people not renewing season tickets. Can we gather half-empty St James's Park come the season starting? I think that probably is the way to force change, and but it's not as simple as that. Um, Newcastle and the North East is an area that, that lives for its football. It lives for Saturday 3pm, and there's an argument that some fans will say, and I, I completely understand it, that Mike Ashley has taken all the joy out of it. The last final defeat would be for us to not go at all. Because that's their club, as they see it. This is our club and you will not defeat me. And if I don't go anymore, I, you will have defeated me. It's not as easy as not renewing season tickets. If, if you don't renew your season ticket at Newcastle, you lose all your away points. And away tickets are hard to come by. So if, this, if a takeover then goes through and they want to go to games again and there's a change of ethos, a change of ownership, then they might want to go again and it's not as easy. So I can understand them not, but I also think that's probably... Well, I, I think it's their best hope of change. I also think there are very, very few more stubborn football owners, football club owners, than Mike Ashley. And nothing we've seen so far indicates a willingness to change on anything other than his terms. Maybe it would work if there was no-one at at St James's Park, but a football club gains its revenue far less out of ticket sales than it used to. So there's no guarantee it does, and it might just make things worse for those supporters because, as I say, the one thing they have got at the moment is that they go to games and they still... Maybe out of some warped enjoyment, but it's still theirs. If they stop going, then they've got nothing. Mm. And the fans are asking, you know, where's the money gone? Mm. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, a regular um, misaccusation against supporters in this type of situation, that they are asking for the world, that they are asking for glory and trophies. They don't want that in Newcastle. What they want is, a, A, they want a club that they can like as well as love, they can believe in, and B, they want a club that is at least willing to fulfil its potential, at least facing in the right direction to fulfil its potential. If it fulfils its potential, Seb's right. They can finish in the top six. There's no reason why not. But they're not asking for that at the moment. All they're asking is, is a belief that the club is trying to do that. And that's what they're finding impossible to believe. Because at every step of the way, the club seem, and its owner seems intent on tripping it up, on, on, intent on holding it back. And that... Uh, it is incredibly dispiriting. It's incredibly damning uh, of an owner that... It, it, it takes some effort to make Newcastle as bad as it is. It takes some effort to make that yeah. club as miserable as it is. And, and he's managed it. And commercially as unsuccessful as it is as yeah. well. The growth figures for, for Newcastle over the last... Because that's always been presented as a trade-off, Mike. It's a... We recede our, our footballing ambition for the sake of this... Um, this other quality which is never actually described or detailed properly and yet when you look at the figures over the last I think 15 years I think Newcastle have grown their commercial revenue by about a million pounds a year mm-hmm. it, it may be in laugh. this era that's yeah it's mad that's, it that's... may be laugh because when they sold Iose Perez um, to Leicester for 30 million pounds the, the line from the club is that this will go into the transfer budget and <laughs> I thought not well that's good though it means it will join the Musa Sissoko money and the Andy yeah, Carroll yeah, money yeah, and the, the Johan Dubai money yeah. money and the Kabai money yeah. it, they're not asking to spend 100 millions of pounds. They're asking to spend money that the club, off its own back, generates. Yeah, Push exactly. that back into the club and into the region and see what can happen. Yeah, yeah. that begs the question, Seb. Is this, are they going to be left with a relegation squad? Absolutely. At the moment, Mike, they've got no centre forward. I mean, they've got Dwight Gale returning from West Brom and, and there are, I'm sure, academy prospects that could potentially fill the role. But in my, for, for, in my mind, Salomon Rondon was the premier target man in the division last season. He's left because 
Mike Ashley doesn't want to sanction a deal for a player of that age. Okay, that's a perspective of sorts. But then you have to actually put something in his place. So at the moment, if they don't finish, if they finish any higher than 20th, I'll be very surprised. They've got no manager, no centre forward. There's been no improvement whatsoever. They have lost a very valuable source of goals with nothing in its place. So I, I can't really, I can't even spin a, a positive, even if I'm being contrary. Mm. If you're a Sheffield Wednesday supporter, mm. you're entitled to feel completely betrayed, aren't you? Yeah, I think you probably are. Um, football has a, a, a pretty skewed concept of loyalty anyway, in that if... If, if none of this interest had happened and Sheffield Wednesday had lost their first eight games of the season, then the club would have quickly got rid of Steve Bruce. But even outside of that hypothetical, um, they can feel a little bit aggrieved. You know, they they put some faith and patience in Steve Bruce when they appointed him because he, he felt he needed a break. He felt he needed a step away from the game for, for personal reasons as well as professional. But they understood that and, you know, they gave him that. He, I think he's only managed 18 games and he's won seven of them and there were signs that things were turning around. But Sheffield Wednesday is a club that needs stability at the moment. Financially, they are in a precarious situation as many championship clubs are. They've only just released their accounts for the 17-18 season and they they only look acceptable because they've sold the, the, the club has sold the stadium effectively to a third party that generated enough money to avoid losses, heavy losses. So they're in a precarious situation and the one thing they needed was stability and that's what Bruce promised them when he took over. Mm. So yeah, I think they can feel pretty betrayed but that's the reality of, of life, unfortunately. If, I can't really blame Steve Bruce for, for wanting to manage his hometown club. I can question his judgment in wanting to manage this Newcastle United because it's not the Newcastle United that he's got in his mind. It's not the one he's got in his heart. It's a very different club to that. Mm. Uh, he, he, will come, he will also come in as a symbol yep. of a regime that is loathed. Yeah, he will. And, and you, you, it's been very interesting to hear former Newcastle players. I saw Michael Chopra, who was not particularly successful as a player there, but come out and say, hang on a minute, this is not good enough. This is not good enough for supporters. If you were a man of that city, back the supporters, don't back the club. And they have someone like Bruce who will come in and think, I can change this. But that's wishful thinking. Um, I understand he wants another shot at the Premier League. I understand he, he feels like he wants to manage Newcastle, but this is not Newcastle anymore. It's Mike Ashley FC, and they're very different things. It's very strange to hear him say, when he, when he, when he talked about Newcastle owed the respect of the conversation when he was still on the contract from Sheffield Wednesday, it's like he's talking about John Hall's club rather than yeah. Mike Ashley's. This, this, this doesn't... This, they aren't owed um, any respect in that situation. It's... Uh, it was a, that is a, a terrible PR gaffe straight off the bat. Mm. If, you're not, if, you're, if you want to come into the club, it's your hometown club, I understand that. Um, but if you're not going into that situation with your eyes open and a full appreciation for what that situation is, that is not a, a particularly and good it, sign. It just sells you, unfortunately, it sells you to supporters yep. as a yes man for the regime. Yeah. So it sells it as you're either putting yourself first or you're putting the club in its current entity first. And neither of those are appetising to supporters. I hesitate to say this because you know, it might come across as being cynical, but you know, what direct influence can a, can a supporters group or a group of supporters have? This morning we've also seen a group of influencers at Arsenal uh, you know, launching a We Care Do You campaign aimed at Stan Kroenke, uh, who is a veteran of basically outraging fan bases in North America. Yep. Very, very worthy stuff. But will it actually matter? I think the mattering is, is hard to define. And in terms of financial impact, it's never meant less. Um, we might have those banners of without supporters, football is nothing. But in financial terms, that's simply not true. Um, without supporters, 
financially, football is a tiny little bit less, um, not enough less. But it's about feeling like you're trying to make a difference. It's about feeling that if, if in five years' time the club is in ruins, can you feel that you did all you could for something you love very deeply? Um, for something that you've po possibly and probably loved more than anything and for longer than anything else in your life. Mm. So it is about feeling as if you're making a difference and, and, and it's about channeling your energies into something that is at least positive. So I get it. I get why people do that. Whether it makes a difference or not, I don't know. But there's probably a sense of, well, if, you know, if nothing else, at least we've given it an effort. But to repeat what I said before, some people will feel that pro boycotts and Pro there's a difference between protest and boycott. Protest is making a point on something. Boycott is actively avoiding going to something that you have loved doing for a long time. And that's, that's a lot to ask. Uh, and the, very, the difficulty of this and the reason that owners like Stan Kroenke win is that things like this cause disconnect and fractions between supporter groups mm. and between supporter bases. That's what's happening at Newcastle United at the moment. And that's a huge shame because the one thing they need to be is, to pardon the pun, is united on these sort of things. And, and they're not at the mm. moment. If we look at Arsenal, are we watching the sort of breakdown of any sort of collective culture, team ethic, if you like? You've got Koscielny, Lauren Koscielny, yeah. essentially going on strike. Yeah. He's saying he's promised one thing, the club are saying something completely different. It's at a time where the club is in complete flux, simply you know, because of the ownership issues mm. that we've talked about. Where do Arsenal go from this? If they're not... Strong, you know, the whole stronger together movement. If they're not together, they are in real deep trouble. Absolutely, Mike. I think I think um, the Koscielny incident was interesting because he's probably the last player I'd have expected to behave like that. He's been a model <clears throat> professional. He's um, he doesn't create any noise. There's never been any uh, audible disaffection throughout his career. So his his uh, his strike action, his uh, absent without leave moment. It seems like a a symptom of a perfect storm of of, of, of circumstance at the club. So you have a at the very disappointing end of the season, you have the historic issues with the ownership and the lack of investment and the uh, strangely low transfer budget. I'd say there is the uh, mismanagement of the wage budget within that, which has caused problems, the Aaron Ramsey decision, um, which has this kind of strange binary relationship with the uh, retention of Mesut Ozil. Um, but I think the greatest affliction for Arsenal now is that sort of there's no real reason to buy in. And I, I'd extend that to supporters and prospective players. Where are Arsenal going? What is, what is this club's direction and trajectory? You think, if you were a, um, if you were a, a player with a, a Champions League past and you had a, a transfer off on the table for Arsenal, what is your motivation to join that club? Because where, what, are you, what are you thinking? Where are you, what are you attaching your wagons to? Like, am I going to be playing the Champions League in a couple of years? Am I going to be surrounded by world-class players? Probably not on both accounts. It's a very difficult time for them because their identity, their historic identity is uh, unimpeachable, fine. But their modern identity, what they stand for in the pure footballing sense, I have no idea. Which is a, you know, say what you like about Arsene Wenger, everyone had a position within that argument, but you knew what <coughs> Arsenal were, you knew what they were trying to do. Now I, I don't know. Now I, I mean, Edu has returned as sporting director, that's, that's, that's potentially good news, theoretically. But they, they seem to be in this, a, a very new type of limbo. And that, that must be very, very difficult for, for anyone with any emotional ties to the club. Yeah. Because of Emery's five captains, <sighs> two have gone, mm. one's gone AWOL, you've then got Jacker, yep. who's been mediocre in patches, let's say, yep. and you've got Ozil, who's a completely polarising figure. Mm. How can you get any sort of substance out of that? No, you can't. Um, but uh, it's very similar to Manchester United in that I, I'm slightly loath to 
blame existing players at a club where, from top down, yeah. everything has been allowed to rot. You know, if you don't fix the roof, then don't complain when the, ca- the carpets in the lounge are, are, are mouldy and wet. Because, and that's what's happened to the squad. It's been allowed to go mouldy. It's been allowed to rot. And yes, it would be nice if players could seize the initiative and could grab games and seasons and, and their fellow teammates by the scruff of the neck. And, and Arsenal had those players in, in Tony Adams and Patrick Vieira. And there's a sense of, of what has been lost in that in that initiative, that sense of initiative. But um, some players aren't naturally like that. And unfortunately, what happens is that when you let something rot from the top down, it becomes very, very hard to fix those problems without fixing the problems at the top. Because all you're doing is, to crowbar in another analogy, is you're, you're rearranging decks on the Titanic. And that's what's happening at Manchester United. That's what's happening at Arsenal. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be, yes, Edu coming in is positive, but there doesn't seem to be a a real sense of proactively trying to fix those things. Everything seems like reaction. Just make do reaction every summer rather than going, let's just go back to basics here and completely revamp. I thought Unai Emery was a good appointment. In hindsight, I think they would have been better going for a Mikel Arteta because it would have at least engineered perhaps some sort of reset and they desperately need that reset. You know what's very discouraging, Mike, is that sort of the beginning of the summer, like, you know, even fans who just watch the occasional game on TV could have... Um, diagnose the footballing issues at Arsenal. Can't defend. Weak in central midfield. A little bit lighter. Definitely left-sided fullback. The injury to Hector Bellerin suggested they need cover in that position too. And we are what we are. Three weeks away from the the Community Shield. And so far, um, Arsenal's problems. Their, their 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 reaction to them has been to try and sign Wilfred Zaha, and a Brazilian forward. It's as if you know you you can you can tolerate your football club making mistakes because transfer dealing is, is a toss of the coin we know this but it, it seems at the moment like people don't really understand what the problems are and that's very discouraging if there's no targeted remedy then what do you think it's as if like a you know a, one of the, the talking heads from a fan channel is in charge of transfer policy now be like I, I want the shiny thing I want the shiny thing to distract me from all the things that are actually wrong mm-hmm. that's not how you run a successful football club because I'm hearing <clears throat> on, a, on a whole number of levels that Arsenal are incredibly ham-fisted in their transfer negotiations and it seems that we're going through that with with Tierney at, at Celtic mm-hmm. as well where they made you know they lowballed very early on and now they've eventually come up with the 25 million that Celtic say they want and Celtic just saying well <laughs> yeah. you know, what have we what have you done for us lately yeah give, the, give us some more it's that combination of incompetence and kind of hardwired inbuilt arrogance from when they were a, a effectively a super club and they're not a super club anymore because everyone has at the time when they were a super club everyone has that much money now you know crystal palace have that much money now they don't need to sell a player they don't need to get spooked by arsenal anymore you know the only way that you are able to lowball clubs nowadays is if 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 you persuade a player or an agent to really push it and arsenal aren't attractive enough to persuade club agents and players to do that anymore so you have to do what Aston Villa have done this summer, which is you overpay for a player because that's how you get business done efficiently. Otherwise, you're left with two weeks in a transfer window remaining and you haven't signed anyone because you can't persuade players to come over the line. It's, that mix of arrogance and, and incompetence is incredibly damaging and it, is, it enables clubs as big as Arsenal and as big as Manchester United to effectively fall into the pack. Yeah, now I'm going I'm to square a ball across an empty six-yard box for you here. Is the Arsenal situation highlighted by the fact that Tottenham are no longer Spursy? 
they're serious. Yeah, I think so. I think that's fair. I mean, it's not a very flattering comparison, isn't it? Is it? Because you, you sort of, I think back to you know the sort of the projections of what Tottenham summer was likely to be at the beginning of last season, when you have the financial burden of the stadium, the difficulties of essentially being in transit, being you know living out of a hotel room figuratively for most of the season. Um, Arsenal uh, have a desperate need in central midfield. Um, Tottenham, despite uh, the, the difficulties with the stadium and the cost of it, were able to go out and spend £70 million on probably, I'd say, the best central midfielder on the market in Europe this summer. How is that possible? Like, how is... I understand Champions League revenue, but in terms of kind of what the club have been dealing with, how are Arsenal not, at the very least, after this long history of sustained Champions League qualification, how has this management been so severe that they have lost not only positional ground in the football sense to Spurs, but also financial parity? It's extraordinary. And uh, no, I, I'm not partisan enough to take pleasure in that because it's just, it's, it's kind of a, it's too modern football to be a, 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 a tribal victory. It's just, it's depressing. It's kind of, this is... You know, the Arsenal fans were, were sold uh, an illusion. You know, the, the new stadium was supposed to, um, to, to, to bring sort of this rich new era. And apart from kind of a, a few sort of defective players that have been brought in at huge cost, who have performed to a high level, it feels like it, 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 that, that, that deal's been reneged on now. Um, and if you're an Arsenal fan, you've just got to hate watching Tottenham qualify for European Cup final, mm. um, qualifying for the Champions League again and, and, and signing the player that they are. It's, it's got to be very, very difficult. And if, if Spurs steal William Saliba from <laughs> Saint-Étienne, you know, that'll put the tin lid on it, won't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a symbolic transfer. It really is. Um, I feel Daniel Levy might be being a little bit mischievous. <laughs> say. But it is. It's unlike him. But I think, it, it, again, it comes back to that, to that hardwired arrogance of just assuming <laughs> that your deal's done so you can, you can let it organically sort itself out without making sure you're getting it over the line. Yeah. The two clubs that are suffering from that the most, Manchester United and Arsenal, are the two that, when they were inefficient, were saved by consistent managers. They were, they were saved by Alex Ferguson, they were saved by Arsene Wenger for a period of time. When Liverpool, when Manchester City, when Tottenham got things wrong, they were fully punished for it because they didn't have any cover for that. And I think those two managers have provided so much cover over the last 15, 20 years that now they're not there and they're making mistakes, those clubs are being scared and they're, they're, they're finally being punished for those inefficiencies. Whereas the clubs who were, who were punished previously, the Liverpools, the Manchester Cities, the Tottenham's, yes, with an extraordinary amount of money, but they are able to prove that they've learned from those mistakes and to now do things properly. Mm. Talking about Manchester United, um, it's been a bit of a topsy-turvy weekend. You know, on Saturday, it was assumed that they'd done a deal, £80 million for Harry Maguire. Now, on Sunday, everyone rode back from that, mm -hmm. and it seems that Maguire is, you know, he wants to go, but he's not going to become, you know, a hostage to fortune, and he will just let it, let the cards fall as they may. Where are Manchester United in terms of their recruitment policy? Because it seems all over the place. Absolutely nowhere, Mike. They, um, as you know, we, we began last season talking about who they were going to appoint as the director of football, and. 12 months have gone by, um, you know, maybe a dozen different people have been connected, and yet there is still no obvious renovation of the footballing department. So at the moment you have a manager who, um, I know he's under permanent contract now, but is still viewed really as an interim. Um, you have a few changes. Mike Phelan has been installed in a position that is still a little bit 
ill-defined at the moment, I think that's fair to say. And so without that kind of the overarching structure being implemented, there is, no, there is no direction. We do not know what Manchester United are trying to achieve. We understand that they have a defensive weakness and that they were quite like to sign Harry Maguire for £80 million, which is extraordinary. But even with that, you, you, sort of, you, you have, this, you have a, a very good player in Harry Maguire, but if you go further south, you can have Toby Alderweireld for £25 million in three different instalments over two years. So that's quite hard for me to rationalise. I know there's a, uh, there's a homegrown player emphasis now, that's fine. But United don't seem to be building towards anything. It goes, we, we, we've covered this two or three times now. It's like a, you can tolerate downturns because football is cyclical and always has been and always will be. What you can't tolerate during your downturns is the idea that no route has been planned back up. And that's Manchester United. It's a... Dan mentioned arrogance earlier. I think it's a really fair way of putting it. It's a, we're Manchester United, and you hear this from Solskjaer. You hear this from Solskjaer, he's talking about not selling players, or we're Manchester United this. It's just not relevant anymore. In reality, Manchester United are a Europa League team, and they deserve to be, because they're not good enough to play in the Champions League now. Um, so once that's recognised, and once the, the ailments which instruct that are cured then you have a reason to believe that Manchester United are resilient, as it is. They're just, every year it gets a bit more muddled. And every year, you, don't, you, you see less and less appetite for, not revolution, but a, a renovation. It's just, it's, it's a mess. Because we're almost in a, in a sort of parallel situation in terms of local rivalry with, with Manchester City, where you've got a clear strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, they recognise that Fernandinho is on his last leg, so they brought in Rodri. Mm-hmm. Within that, there was some talk about them being linked with uh, Danny Alves. In what universe does that make sense? Great player, by the yes, way. Yes, and I think a, a 35-year-old Danny Alves is probably a 31, 32-year-old version of any other world-class fullback. Uh, but no, it doesn't make much sense purely because uh, he is an, a name signing nowadays. As soon as you move to Paris Saint-Germain, quite frankly, you become a name signing and... Um, and Pep Guardiola doesn't seem to, to want to go down that route, and I completely understand it. I think he's got enough uh, ego, in a complementary sense, enough ego in that team to take it on already without bringing in others. Um, Rodri is a perfect example of, mm. of Manchester City. They identify the player. He first comes on the radar of, of transfer rumours 18 months ago, and 18 months down the line, they get their man. And this is a club that, that tried to replicate and cherry-pick everything Barcelona did because Barcelona do, were doing everything better than anyone else. And they're reaping the rewards for that. And they are, they are looking constantly proactively. Even when they're winning, they are doing more proaction than Manchester United are when they're losing. And that's, that's pretty damning. Mm. Let's look at Liverpool, Seb. Um, there's a lot of talk on the strength you know, of one pre-season friendly at Tranmere uh, of uh, Rian Brewster having an important role to play this season. Is that just pre-season whimsy? Uh, well, he, he scored yesterday at Bradford too. Um, <laughs> Uh, hard to say. I, I mean, I don't feel like I've got a, a hold on what kind of player Ryan Brewster is. Really impressive young man. I like, hear him speak and to hear him speak about the challenges he's faced in his career and the um, and the difficulties he's experienced with racial abuse on the field and from the stands. Mm. I have a lot of admiration for him. As a footballer, I don't know because mainly because I, I don't know where he fits in. I mean, where are you? Where are you placing him to give him significant game time within that front three? Because he's a forward. Not quite sure what kind of forward. Younger, upgraded version of uh, Sturridge, maybe. <sighs> maybe, but then even you know the the actual version of Sturridge is a was before he left Liverpool, um, kind of incidental. Um, Divock Origi has just signed a new contract. He has um, 
in a strange way, proven his worth over the last sort of few weeks of, of last season. I don't know. I, I, I um, it's it's one of those things that people say. I mean, uh, Pep Guardiola did the same with Phil Foden. Like it's a, you know, he's he's definitely he's definitely my plans, and he's definitely going to be inserted into important, pertinent situations. And that was kind of true by the end of the season, but over the, over the year as a whole, not really. So I don't know. I I think I'd I quite like to to see him go on loan somewhere. Just mm. because I, just to see him him discover himself as a player and to, to actually define a role for himself, and then maybe in a year's time come back and fight for whatever that role actually is. That'd be mm. uh, maybe the best situation for him. What do Liverpool need then to actually stay at the, the the same level or even reach a higher level? I think Klopp's next challenge is to keep Liverpool as a, a super club in terms of, of of achievement, which they have now reached by definition. Um, while also trying to maintain those those links with with the community, with young players, with players like Ryan Brewster, and you know, it, it was Bedwood, Ben Woodburn before him, and Harry it was Wilson, I guess exactly. Harry yeah, Wilson's yeah. there, and and Trent Alexander Arnold is a is a you know a flashing neon light towards that, but he only came into the team because Nathaniel Klein was injured, and he took his chance unbelievably. Joe Gomez is a young player, but obviously they signed him from Charlton, so I think that's his next challenge: is to rather than signing players to bolster his squad to see if he can bring players through to be the challengers for the for the starting positions because they've got an incredibly young team you know Jordan Henderson was their most regular was the oldest most regular player last season James Milner came in and out but Henderson's still only he's not 30 yet mm-hmm. so there's there's a lot more to come out of Naby Keita. There's a lot more to come out of Fabinho. Oxlade-Chamberlain will be fully fit. Joe Gomez was injured for parts of last season. So there's a heck of a lot of competition for places in that squad yeah. before you bring in the young players. So I think that's his challenge. and Because he knows if he can do that without resorting to romantic cliché, it can be very powerful at Liverpool. If you can, can, if you can create a conveyor belt of youngsters when the club is successful... I mean, that's the best that Liverpool have, have done in their history is by, by doing that. So I think that's his challenge. And, and I mean, they're very fortunate in that they, they are comprehensive second favourites for the Premier League. They will be very disappointed if they don't finish in the top two in the Premier League yes. next season because purely because of the leaps and bounds they came last season. So he's kind of got a little window because if Liverpool don't win the league next season and they don't win the Champions League next season, I think Klopp still retains a heck of a lot of goodwill. I don't think anyone sees that as... Horrible disappointment, um, simply because of what he did last season. Mm. Let's look at Everton across the city and the influence of a director of football, Marcel Brands in, in this yeah. case. Looks like Fabian Delph is going there for around about £8 million, which strikes me as very good business. Yeah. Talk about Diego Costa, which is basically you're throwing a, a <laughs> grenade into the dressing room if it happens. How is that experiment at Everton working, do you think? At the moment... Positively, I mean, there's a caveat here in that um, Everton have a are operating under a transfer ban for under 18 players. Uh, I think that expires in 2020. And one of um, one of Marcel Brands' selling points was his ability to um, make the most of academy products. So let's park that for another year. But I think finally at Everton, you've got a little bit of a sense of order. I think um, prior to to him arriving, it was very very difficult to understand their movement in the transfer window. It was like uh, you know. The, the seasons under Steve Walsh were... Um, it was like what, what we said about Manchester United. They were trying to cure a problem without really understanding what it was. So you just got a lot of players being bought for a lot of money to fill no specific place in the team, which is very, very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that um, there's obviously a little bit of a partnership between Brands and, uh, and Marco Silva. That's very, very important, that dynamic between manager and director of football. You've got to have a, a singular philosophy between them. Um, Farhad Mashiri, I think it's 
behind the Diego Costa thing. That's the name that gets attached to him, which is strange because the best owners are the ones that have no dealings whatsoever in football because they're not qualified. Like rich, successful men think they know sport because they watch a lot of it. But these positions in the modern day are filled by people with actual qualifications and experience. And Everton have that. I mean, Walsh was a scout, not really a director of football. Brands has a track record for making clubs, not teams necessarily, but clubs better and healthier and more productive and more financially efficient. Um, and there are those signs. It's been nicely quiet. They've got Andre Gomez in, there are a few rumours floating around, but there is a, there's a nice balance. Delph is a logical signing. So everything, everything that's happening at Everton, quite differently to, to a few years ago, as a, as a neutral, you look at it and say, yeah, that makes sense. They need a centre-forward. They don't need a Diego Costa-shaped centre-forward, but they need a centre-forward. But otherwise, they've kind of moved quite nicely through the summer. And I think that's a, that is always a symptom of health, when you can understand what they're trying to achieve. Mm. Similarly, at Norwich, you've got another director of football who has a very, very clear vision of, of, of what that club represents, and he's changed the culture of the club. Yep. You know, I'm talking yeah, about Stu Webber there. Um, how do you think they'll get on this season, Norwich? I think it's harder and harder for, for promoted clubs to um, to stay up, to make their mark and it, it feels more and more like they have two choices which is either to spend big because they feel they need to and that's I don't correct think, I don't think they're going to do No, that. which is correct um, or stick to exactly what they know and they've got this vision and they'd be stupid to do anything else. Whether that's enough to keep them up is another matter entirely it, it, it sounds very it sounds a very negative way of looking at it, but I think promoted clubs now are coming up and thinking, right, let me look at the league table and pick three clubs I think we can finish above. And I'm sure that's deep down is what most Norwich fans are looking at the table and doing. Um, but if, if it doesn't work and if they do go down again, there's no reason why they can't be stronger for the experience, certainly financially, but also with the fact they've stuck to their guns, the fact that they are doing things the right way, the fact that they're buying players that fit a pattern and fit a mould of the club... As long as, for as long as Daniel Farker is there, I don't see any reason to change that. Why would they? they their promotion last season was, and the way in the manner in which they achieved it was was truly extraordinary. It really was. Mm. Oh, you can see you can see Farker's um, fingerprints over their transfer dealing mm. so far. You know, you've got um, Ralph Farman, the goalkeeper they brought in from Schalke, the Swiss striker Dermich. Yeah. Um, it, it was a pretty much left field guy, but you know they got him from Munchen Gladbach. There is it's signs, you know, you talked earlier on, Seb, about the, you, know, you need an umbilical cord between the manager yeah. and the director of football. They, are, they have got that. Yeah, well, you know, what a career Stuart Webber's had, actually. Like, I mean, I think the guy was, he was uh, head of youth at Wrexham when he was 19 or something, and he's, he's, only, he's younger than I am now. And he's been, um, he's been at Liverpool, uh, he's been at Wolves, he was one of the powers behind Huddersfield's rise. I know he was instrumental in the signing of Aaron Moy there, which... I just feel would have brought in Wagner, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, you know, so so what a career. So at this at this point, why would you not have faith in his ability to uh, to adapt to Premier League? I don't really like Dermich. I, I I found that a little bit strange. Um, that was a weird one. The goalkeeper, I don't know. I know that there are some issues with Tim Krul. That there's a little bit of chatter amongst the fans about whether he's good enough to Premier League. So fine, fair enough. But uh, I'm 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 interested by 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 Norwich. I think. Um, 
they've come to the Premier League with a, a very different sort of mindset. They've come playing stylish football, of course, but with a, a different scouting imperative, which is fascinating. Mm. You mentioned Villa earlier on, and mm. you know, there, there is this sort of, it's almost a knee-jerk debate at the moment, are they going to do a Fulham? Yep. It looks like they're going to spend around about the same money, about £100 mm. million. Yeah. Are they going about it in, the, in, in a better fashion? Yeah, I think they're going about it in the only fashion they could, yeah. um, for several reasons. Very quickly, firstly, they, they, they lost 14 players at the end of last season, some of those who were loan deals ending, which left them, I think, with 17 players in the first-team squad. So they had a lot of work to do anyway. Uh, they've also bought defenders, which Fulham didn't do, really not good ones. Uh, they had too much faith in Dennis Adoy and Tim Ream for most of the season, which was to their downfall. Yeah. Um, and they've also bought their players early, which always sticks out because they've done more business than most. But Fulham signed five players on deadline day last summer. That was the problem. You created that air of transience that it felt like no one was mucking into a potential relegation battle and, and no one ever did really muck into it. Dean Smith is, is, a, is a Villa man through and through and he's a man who demands players buy into that ethos of the club. So by buying them early, that's exactly what you'll persuade them to do. Mm. I still think it's going to be very hard for them to stay up, but I, I don't think you can criticise them for doing what they've done because I don't actually think they had a choice. Well, you know, you know one, of the, one of the things people miss with Fulham, like buying a lot of players is not necessarily a symptom of dysfunction. Dan said it, Fulham needs to do it. Fulham, Fulham's recruiting problems lasted for three years. They, they, they pre-existed their promotion. They had... Um, uh, I forget his first name, but the uh, Klein, the, um, Tony, the Day, Khan. Tony Khan's friend, brought in yeah, his yeah, date. Yeah. That, he's the guy attached to that sumo wrestling outfit anecdote that is one of the best I've ever heard, actually, <laughs> yeah. in football. Um, but you had this disconnect between what the manager wanted, between who he wanted to manage, and the type of player the club wanted to bring in. It is always a disaster. Villa don't have that. No. If you listen to Christian Perslow talk about Villa now, it is always a we. It is always with reference to Dean Smith. It is always what we as a club are trying to do. Um, and that is, there's no reason as a result to prejudge what's happening this summer. There's no, there's no Andre Schirler signing there. There's no, no there's signing that you look at and go, no you don't really want to be, you're, you're only here because you didn't have another offer. Yeah. They've made none of those signings. Yeah. And, and it helps also that Dean has come from Club Brentford, who are extremely smart in yeah. recruitment. Absolutely, yeah. You know, he, he wanted Bjorn Engels, yeah. who he's just got... Um, yeah, when a, a year ago when he was at Brentford. Yeah, and he signs Ezri Konza, who's yeah. been one of the, or is one of the highest rated centre backs in the country and, and yeah. one of the Championship's best defenders. So, yeah, there is a, there is, we've, we've said it over and over on this show already, but there is proaction there. There is a plan. This is, all this is, is carrying out a plan early in the transfer window. This isn't a mad rush of signings no. or a mad panic. This is merely carrying out what they wanted to achieve. And yes, they have overpaid for players. I think they've overpaid for Tyron Mings. I think yeah. they've overpaid for Matt Target. But, that's the price you pay now when you want to get things done quickly and, and the club that's selling those players doesn't need to sell them. So you either hang on and hang on and buy them on the last day for an inflated fee or you buy them for an inflated fee early on. And yeah. I think that's the best way to do it. Mm. What do you think of the way that Sheffield United are going about things? Oh, Chris Wilder signed a new longer-term contract. Jagielka, Phil Jagielka is going back there, which has you know, sentimental attachment. But if we're being you know, pretty forensic about it, he was on the slide, wasn't he, at Everton? Mm. Is it enough that that football club will be built in the image of its manager? Well, I think Chris Wilder is a very innovative manager. I mean, I particularly like when the set pieces are fantastic. His set pieces—it's amazing how often last season Sheffield United scored a goal from a set piece, and when, it, when like a principal goal threat was completely unmarked, it just suggests incredible, incredibly good set piece design. Um, I think Premier League audiences will enjoy watching the way his centre backs play with the overlap around the outside. Um, I think they'll enjoy watching Oliver Norwood and his sort of delivery from that shallow right position. 
I've got a little bit of a question mark against um, uh, Billy Sharp and David McGoldrick. I just, I don't know. I, I'd love Billy Sharp to sort of have a, an Andy Johnson season, um, just, you know, a proper Indian summer. And McGoldrick has strangely become very prolific in his 30s. Um, I don't know whether they'll score enough goals, but they're not, they're not tactically blunt. This is not, um, with the greatest respect to Neil Warnock, this is not Cardiff City again. This is a, okay, a slightly underpowered team, but a very smart and tactically well-designed team. Um, so they'll outthink some people and they'll surprise them. They're not, they're not a blood and thunder charge into tackles, win every 50-50 team. That's the misconception. And that's just because they're a team solely comprised of British and Irish players and, and managed by someone who cut his teeth in the non-leagues. But they are, um, yeah, they're, they're, they'll be interesting. They'll be good to watch. Mm. Any other breakout teams? You know, I'm looking at Wolves. Mm. And here again, we talk about the corporatisation of football, don't we? You know, they're in Shanghai today. There's a pop-up Wolves megastore, which has been stormed by the media and, and uh, mm. new, newfound fans in China. But is the club in danger of losing something intrinsic, something really important? Possibly. Uh, obviously, last week they lost Laurie Dalrymple, mm. um, who was, uh, uh, I mean, very much a businessman, but was a um, a kind of halfway house between Wolves and and Foson. You know, he was a he was he kept both a foot in both camps. I think it's yeah. fair to say, and that will be a very hard role and a hard person to replace. Um, but I, I think that represents the fact that that Wolves are. Wolves' journey now is almost being self-propelled by the success on the pitch. So that um, there's clearly the relationship with Jorge Mendes. There's no doubt about that. But that seems to be very safe. The ownership now seems to be a settled. So I think they they think that the only way is up. The question with Wolves will always happen when things slow down. Whether there is any inbuilt patience in this rise. And and personally, I think I would favour Leicester as the breakout team over yeah. Wolves this season, because I think there is a um, there is a slightly ironically on on the back of winning the most astonishing league title in in history. But there is a sense that it doesn't all have to happen at once. And if there are a you know, there is a, a couple of months of slowdown that it doesn't build any pressure on anyone. They, to me, feel more sustainable at the moment. Um, but if you look where Wolves have come from, there's no, you can't. Mm. It's pretty hard to have a pop at anyone involved in the whole process because it's been astonishing. Mm. What about West Ham? Mm, worrying noises. This forward thing just feels very reminiscent of what, where they were a couple of years ago. We've had 38 since 2010. <laughs> so, so, like, in the last couple of weeks, they've, um, they've mixed, missed out on Maxi Gomez who refused to even speak to them before going to Valencia. They want to spend £40 million on Sebastian Haller, Eintracht Frankfurt. Good player, but very much played in Luka Jovic's shadow last season. Uh, this morning on the train up to record this, Mike, I heard that they, uh, they're, they're interested in Andrew Bellotti, the 3-0 forward, which you just think, you're dreaming, no chance. Mm. And it just feels like... They were linked with Higuain as well, weren't they? Which... But, Mike, if you, if you take those four players as a group, <laughs> they're not the same forward. It's a funny boy band, isn't it? <laughs> but it, 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 it it's like, it, you know, where, <laughs> where's the harmony in that group? Like, it, it's kind of, we want a forward and we want to spend a lot of money on a forward. And we don't really care how he fits into the team because you've got four very different players. So where is your... Uh, I, I'm kind of at a loss. It just feels so West Ham. Yeah, I, I actually think they'd be better off not just, getting one and playing playing their band of exciting attacking yeah. midfielders as one big melting pot. I mean, yeah. you've, got, you've got Felipe Anderson and you've got Andrei Yarmolenko and you've got Fornals that's come in and you've got Michael Antonio that still does his thing and you've got Manuel Lanzini back from Fit injury. again, yeah. You've got 
you've got a, a really exciting group of attacking midfielders there that you're almost holding back, I think, by playing a centre forward. Just just play a group of them and be exciting. But... Who's coming up with these names? Like who, who who is who is who is saying right? We've got a list of targets and we're going to work our way through them. Ordinarily, at normally every other club, that list of targets is kind of the same player. Yeah, with, with some exceptions or with some strengths and weaknesses. But you think, right, we've got a first and a second and a third. And West Ham is just a, a kind of, we've got this big cheque for £40 million and we are determined to spend it on someone. That is not, I, I, have, I have trouble with that. Well, it's owners and cookie jars, isn't it? Yeah, but it's just like someone's kind of, oh, you know, I, I saw this I, I saw this guy on, on TV or this YouTube, but, you know, like, I, I don't, it, it's, it's like the players that we've heard of that we can afford and that, you know, will, will bring some attention. It's just like that is not how you build a football team. Yeah. Maybe how you sell some shirts, but, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's end, if we may, with some reflections on a forward who knew his own role and everyone knew his role, Peter Crouch, mm. his retirement. We've lost the character, that's for sure. What else have we lost? I think he, he probably is, and it's a very sweeping generalisation, but I think he's probably everyone's second favourite footballer. Your favourite footballer is the best player at your club, generally, and your second favourite footballer is Peter Crouch. He, he, was, he, was, he was better than he looked, and he was better than most of us gave him credit for, but yet he, he is someone who absolutely squeezed everything out of what he had, particularly international level, and managed to do something that we increasingly think is a very serious business with a smile on his face. Mm. Uh, absolutely didn't take himself too seriously. And, well, I've got a lot, of, a lot of time for that because we do take football very, very seriously, too seriously. It's a lot easier to do it with a smile on your face when you're earning a lot of money, but yeah, yeah many didn't. So, yeah, good on him. He's attached to one of my favourite footballing moments, his, his goal at the Etihad as a Tottenham fan. So, wonderful. But I, I think he's self-deprecating. How rare is that? Like a, a guy that just doesn't... He, he, he knew how to poke fun at himself. He knew how lucky he was to play the game for a living. I mean, remember the first time I ever saw him was a, a QPR against Sheffield Wednesday in probably about 2001. He was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> but he was a young guy and he was, he was still sort of learning how to use his body properly. And then within 10 years, he's playing in the Champions League, he's playing at World Cups. And like, what a, what a, what a good role model in the footballing sense. You know, the amount of, um, if, you, if you sort of read up in the other parts of the career, the, the amount of disdain he suffered through because of his, his shape and his height. And he was a pretty slender, yeah. pretty thin guy. As, as a, honest, <laughs> yeah, like that's, uh, you know, in, it, you know it, it's only really just changing now. But in the academy world where they kind of wanted cookie cutter athletes to play in a very specific way, that was difficult, presumably, for him. So all the respect in the world for what he achieved. Yeah. Well, football is full of whispers and moans, but I've never heard anyone with a bad word to say about Peter Crouch. That says it all. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.